Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Hey, good morning. Um, today is going to be fun. We are going through the book of Romans. We are at Romans 13, and today I'm going to tick some of you guys off. Uh, so yeah, get ready for that. Um, my email is binf at christchapelbc.org. You can send me your angry emails. Uh, it might be a while before I reply to them, just because I got a lot of angry emails to reply to. Um, but yeah, you're, you're not supposed to talk about religion and politics. That's something you're not supposed to. The problem with that is we preach the Bible here, and we believe in preaching the Bible. And the problem is the Bible talks about religion and politics. And so that's where we are. Uh, that's kind of where what uh, Romans and the Apostle Paul who wrote Romans has led us up to. So Josh finished chapter 12. We're in Romans 13. But before you go to Romans 13, I actually need to set up um, quite, a, quite a lot, uh, the context of where this argument that Paul's coming from. And so I actually need you to go to Mark. And we'll throw it up on the screens if that's way easier for you. Um, but I want to show you something in Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus has this really important encounter um, with the Pharisees and, and these guys who are really trying to trap Jesus. And so in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, it says, says this. And they sent to him, meaning Jesus, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So they're going to try to trap Jesus. And they came and they said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So they're buttering him up and, and being all flowery and flattery. And then they ask this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So here's the trap that is set up for Jesus. Um, the Israelites, the Jewish people, were, um, had been conquered and they were under Roman rule. And so they were living in their country but didn't have control of their company, country. They were under the Roman oppressive government that the Rome was in charge. And so because of that, Jewish people in the time of Jesus were obviously really frustrated by that as anybody would. They didn't like Rome. They didn't want Rome there. Rome had come in, had pushed out you know, what, what their faith was in a lot of areas, tried to coexist, but Rome was in charge. And so there was just a lot of constant tension uh, with, with government and the Jews and Rome. And so they asked this question to really try to trap Jesus, where if he says, yes, we're supposed to pay taxes to Rome, who are functionally the bad guys, then he looks like a sellout to all of his followers. Then he looks like somebody that's like, oh man, you don't, you like Rome, you support Rome, you're one of them, and he looks like a sellout, because at that time, what the Jewish people wanted was they wanted a Messiah, and when they said Messiah, when they said they wanted a Savior, what they meant was we want somebody to overthrow Rome. That's what they were looking for. And so even all of the Old Testament leading up and in this period of kind of silence before Jesus shows up in, in the Old Testament, before the New Testament begins, there's this silence. And what had happened was the Jewish people were like, man, I can't wait for our Savior. And our Savior is going to come and he's going to overthrow Rome. So they were looking for this political leader to, to create a kingdom here on, on earth, kicking out Caesar and, and taking, uh, taking the throne. 
taking David's throne in Jerusalem. And so if he says yes, he looks like a sellout, right? If he says no, then he looks like a, a conspirator against Rome, and he's going to get in trouble with Rome. And so they, they, they put him in this, in this difficult place. This is his answer. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. That was one of their coins. That was the Roman um, coin, their, their, um, their denomination of money. Let me look at it. Let me look at this coin. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They looked at the coin, and they said, they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. So here's what Jesus does, and it's really important to understand what Jesus does because this is what Paul knows that Jesus does whenever he writes Romans 13. Jesus creates a perspective shift in all of his followers, and this perspective shift specifically with, with political alignment revolves around the idea that Jesus introduces this idea of a dual citizenship, right? And, and he creates this, this balance and then yet this tension between a dual citizenship to where he can look at the things of Caesar's and the things of Rome and the things of this worldly government, and he can say, hey, there is a citizenship here that I can respect. And there's a citizenship here to the Roman government that I can respect. And, and, and make no mistake, this is the Roman government that Jesus knows is going to execute him. But he can say, hey, I can respect that and we can pay our taxes because that's Caesar's face, so let's give Caesar what Caesar wants in his monetary system. But then he creates his dual citizenship too where, where he makes this idea of this second kingdom of God's kingdom and give God what God is due. And so this dual citizenship idea is huge. Christians, we must live in a, in a, as citizens of two kingdoms. And so if we claim to be followers of Christ, then this doctrine is really important for us. And Romans 13 is going to kind of explain to us how we do that. But this doctrine of dual citizenship is important for all believers because we have these two kingdoms that we're citizens of. The earthly kingdom, which is obvious and it's around us. And here we are in Fort Worth, Texas. And, and our governor has mandates and our president has mandates. And the Constitution has uh, created rights and liberties and, and some hopefully guiding principles. And, and we've got the Supreme Court. And, and so we've got this earthly government in which we function and operate in. But then also, if we're believers, if we put our faith in Christ, then we have this kingdom of God, his kingdom, and what is important to him, and what he values, and an allegiance that we should give to him um, in Renovate, uh, actually, coincidentally enough, in Renovate, which is our monthly Wednesday night kind of larger young adult gathering, uh, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount really was the inaugural address of here's what Jesus' kingdom looks like. And so we're spending, it's three chapters in the book of Matthew, but we're spending an entire semester just zooming in on what that kingdom of God should look like, what, what the ethics of that kingdom, what the morality, what the rules, what the cautions of that kingdom look like. That's exactly what Jesus was doing when he began his ministry, when he stepped onto that mount and gave uh, the sermon there. So how do we properly prioritize these kingdoms, right? How do they fit? W which ranks above which? How do we do this? And that's what's going to happen in, in Romans 13. And here's why that's important. Um, that's really important that we as believers know how to function in these two kingdoms and, and how to prioritize the two kingdoms appropriately. Because if we don't, it ruins our witness, Right? Our witness just gets hijacked. And by that, I mean a world around us who if we proclaim Jesus Christ 
and we've been baptized into his spirit and we say our life is no longer our own and, and we wear him not because we're good enough, not because we're religious and churchy enough, but because we've seen the grace that he offers us as a bunch of broken sinners. That's what we are. We're just broken sinners who for some crazy reason are loved and accepted by this God and we've been overwhelmed by that grace. And, and so, yes, we take his name and we say, man, we're his followers and his people and and yet it's so confusing for the world around us if we claim the name of Christ, if we claim Christianity, and yet live in a way where it doesn't seem that our, our hope is at all in him. And so if we don't get this right, this ability to prioritize two kingdoms, um, it's going to really hurt our witness. And a world watching us proclaim Jesus is going to watch us stumble over ourselves. Man, and that's, that happens all the time, right? I mean, we... One of the biggest turnoffs for those who aren't Christians, and so if you're here in this room and you're like, man, I'm still checking it off, or maybe you're here in this room and, and you're not fully convinced because of this very reason, you have watched hypocrisy on full display in the name of Christ. You've watched people who said, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, we're a church, uh, we do, and you have just been hurt by them. You've seen just wicked hypocrisy in their life, and that is a massive, not just turnoff, it's confusing to say, you say you follow that God, and that's what your life looks like, that's how you treat people, that's awful. And that inconsistency makes people stumble, and it makes people think, well, I don't want to follow that God if that's the result. And so if you're in that camp, let me just say this. Um, you're right, um, and I'm sorry, and it's broken. We're broken. Uh, Christians are broken people. We have a God who has shown us grace that we're walking with, but we're imperfect people trying to represent this perfect God, but we stumble over ourselves and we, and we embarrass ourselves and we realize that as a poor witness. But if you've been hurt by that, um, man, my hope and my prayer is that you don't hold that against a God who actually has an amazing purpose for you and has grace for you and is calling you to something better. That you don't let my hypocrisy or my insensitivity, or other believers' hypocrisy and insensitivity keep you from a father who loves you. Okay, we do this all the time too in, in our world, man, um, specifically in the realm of politics. Uh, the last five years um, have been, uh, yeah, crapshoot, man. Um, it's, been, it's been crazy to see the divisiveness in politics, unlike any other season in history. And I know you guys are tired of hearing unprecedented and the most dramatic bachelor finish ever. I get it, right? We use that a lot, which it was, guys. Let's talk about that next week. Um, I've watched the After the Rose. I was uncomfortable. We need to debrief. We're doing that. We're doing that later, though. Uh, focus, Ben. Oh, yeah, politics. Okay, so five years ago, four or five years ago, uh, Trump gets elected, and there's this whole wave of people, right? Not my president. I hate that guy. He represents all that's evil. There's nothing about him that's good, and he just, right? And there was this massive polarization of literally that I, I totally reject that authority, right? And just wholesale reject it. And anger and, and vitriol and hatred. And I saw, like, pictures of people who had, like, fake Trump heads that were, like, bleeding, you know? just like, wow, that's awful stuff, right? That's awful stuff. And if you're not dual citizens, right, if you're, if you're a citizen of America and that's it, and you are not also a citizen, you're not a follower of Christ, and so you don't have this dual citizenship with the kingdom of God and a God who's in control and a God who's calling you to a lifestyle, then honestly, I can't blame those people, 
right? I don't, I don't necessarily blame them for a feeling like their world is crumbling under them because that is the only citizenship that, that their worldview has because they're not followers of Christ, because they don't adopt this idea of dual citizenship with, with the kingdom being this larger, more eternal perspective uh, that this world is going to go away, but there is a larger kingdom. And so we saw that, right? We, then we saw that for four years, where we just, whatever side he's on, this side's going to be completely opposite. There's no middle ground. Um, there's, there's no grace there. It's, it was vitriolic. Then, I don't know if you guys knew this, but in October, we had another election. Uh, I don't know if you heard about that. Uh, also, crazy divisive, right? Biden wins. Biden wins, okay? And, and then, all of a sudden, right, he's not my president and this, to the point of, like, some people, like, storming and shattering glass and breaking down doors and, and, and you know, carrying their Confederate flags into the Capitol building. And, I mean, that level of revolt and violence and just vitriolic hatred of, of their kingdom. This was their hope. Their hope was that guy, and he didn't win, or maybe it got stolen, or whatever the narrative is that we believe, or they believe, or whatever we choose to believe, whatever narrative it is, it was clear that both times you could see the bottom drop out of a, of a section of people, and the hopelessness drove them to just anger, and fake decapitated heads, and riots, and, and violence, and, it's, and it happens on both sides. And it happens on both sides. I believe, um, as Christians, that's a major problem when it does. And I believe, as Christians, it's not a problem of policy, and it's not a problem of posture of a politician, and he said something that offended me or offended someone. It is a problem of misplaced hope. And I really believe that our problem, oftentimes, is this misplaced hope. That, that's at the root of, of why I can just lose my mind over, over what kingdom I'm a part of or who's ruling that kingdom. And it happens all throughout our life, not in politics. Um, but obviously, we care about policies. We should. We should be educated and really care about them. We should care about posture of our politicians also if we say we represent Christ. We should care about people's posture and their character and, and their language, right? But at the end of the day, as believers, this idea of dual citizenship should produce in us where is our hope? Where is our ultimate hope? Let me give some other examples. Um, for the guy who smashes his TV when his sports team loses, right? Have you ever, have you ever seen someone or a, a video of somebody who just, you know, the field goal kicker misses their field goal, or maybe that's you, right, in this room, or maybe the guy who, when he loses the video game, chunks his controller, right, and shatters his controller, right? Um, I get it, that's a, that's a little easy, safer example, but the reality is there's a level of that where there was almost a hope of this is my team, this is where I find some identity, some of my satisfaction if my team fails me, to the point where that reaction is inadequately matched to a, a sporting event, right? You, you one day have or might one day lose a job, and that will be circumstantially a very negative thing, potentially a devastating thing. However, the weight and the response of how devastating that is and how you respond and react to that negative circumstance that you didn't want, you didn't like, is going to reveal a lot about where your hope is. And if you losing a really important job devastates you to the point where your world is totally crumbled, then most likely you probably had too much of your hope 
in that job. And so when that job is then taken away, you've lost everything. And there is almost a hopelessness. We see this with relationships a lot. Relationships are the most intimate, important thing. We're designed for them, right? Much less we have a world that tells us what they're supposed to look like and, and when we're supposed to be in one and when we're supposed to get our ring by spring and when we're supposed to do this. And we, and we have all these social pressures aside from just this God-given desire to, to be in relationship. And man, when we lose relationships, when they leave or when we leave or when there's brokenness or when there's hurt there, that's, that's real. We should put a lot of value in those and a lot of equity and time and love into those and sacrifice. And when they go away, though, it, it, we should grieve. We should be devastated. But the depth of our devastation, does it go to hopelessness? And if it does, then it reveals that, okay, all of our hope was in this job, was in this career, was in this person. Maybe we're single and all of our hope is I got to find somebody because I, I can't function. I can't imagine a world where I don't have my person. And so that drive to find a good thing that God wants you to find and God desires for you to find becomes the penultimate thing because that's my hope. I need a boyfriend. I need a girlfriend. I'm willing to make whatever compromises to be able to make that thing happen. And that's dangerous. So this idea of where our hope is and and how do we identify where our hope is misplaced is huge. Um, and I, I want to specify one quick thing too. Hope is not our fingers crossed. Biblical hope isn't, man, I hope that that happens. Biblical hope is an assurance, right? It's an assurance of, that I believe in, right? I, I, I hope, I have hope that I will never get divorced. And I have that hope because I really believe I will never get divorced based on the track record of the last 14 years of my marriage and, and the fact that, like, I don't know why my wife married me, but she did. And now this 14 years in, now she's stuck. We have two kids, and so she can't. Um, and because of the covenant and the commitment and the perspective we have, we don't talk about it as, like, well, if we, no, like, we are, we are to death do we part. And so, so I have my hope there in that. Hope is a, a full assurance. Um, I'm going to just jump right into Romans 13. I was going to go down a rabbit trail of Hebrews, but I'm going to jump right into uh, Romans 13. So, so look, all of that sets up the context where Paul is at, okay? Pa Paul is now at this place where he knows what's Christ teaching, and he knows this idea of this dual citizenship. And so in, verse, in chapter 13, verse 1, he begins to explain the relationship uh, between the two things. So chapter 13 Verse 1, uh, it says this. Let every person, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay, so here's what's happening. What does this perspective shift look like? Well, Paul says it here. That every person, all of us who follow Christ are called to be subject to the governing authorities in our life. And so here's this dual citizenship idea. And what it's based on is this idea that there is no authority except from God. Meaning, my hope and my ability to function in a worldly government that is broken and wrong and has politicians lead it all the time that I don't believe in or agree with and that I'm bothered by, my hope comes in the fact that I believe God is still in control. And I believe God is still in control because he says he's still in control. 
Because he says in verse 1 of chapter 13, there is no authority except from God. God has, God has produced this. God has given authority to this. So God is in control. And so because of that, I'm able to now navigate this tension in the world we live in. I don't have to disengage right, from politics. I don't have to just become cynical and just completely remove myself from politics because I know actually God's in control, and so I can engage in really thoughtful ways, and I can push forward and advocate for, for policies that I believe are in line with who God is and, and how he's created us and his image from conception, and I can, I can create all of this, this political policies around this idea of I can engage because I believe a God who's in control, and also I can engage in ways of, of, of challenging politicians and posture and language and godliness and all of those things. So I don't have to disengage from this citizenship of the world because I believe God's in control and I believe he's using it and wants to use it. But I also don't have to panic because I believe God is in control. So, so I don't have to panic. The bottom doesn't have to fall out for me. I can have peace in the midst of politics. I can have peace in the midst of my guy not winning. I can have peace in the midst of rules and laws and taxes that I don't want to pay and I don't want to follow. But I can have peace knowing that here in Romans 13, God seems to say, hey, I'm behind these things and I'm still in control. And so we realign where our hope should be. And it's not about caring less Right? This isn't about, okay, well, I don't want the bottom to fall out, and I don't want to be this angry person. I don't want to ruin my witness, and so I'll just care less. It's not about caring less about our government. It's about caring more about our God. It's about caring more about who he is and trusting him, and it's an increase in my trust, not just a, a cynicism that should raise up in us to say, okay, God's in control. I'm just going to not engage. That would, be, that would be devastating, I think, for the cause of Christ in our country. So let me, let me go into the next few verses. Romans 13, two through four. Here's where Paul goes. Therefore, so because God is in control, because he is behind that authority, he, he then says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant, talking about government, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. What we see from Scripture is that the government is a tool that God uses. Right, the government is a tool that God uses. Whether we like it or not, it's true. It happens all throughout the Old Testament, right? At the beginning of our scriptures, right? It's all throughout here. Pharaoh, we see in, in the Old Testament, Pharaoh had the Israelites as his slaves. And it even says God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't let them go easily, right? So that God would show these signs and miracles and, and display his power and his glory and, and, and break Pharaoh's hand to set the, the captives free. Uh, we see a prophet named Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And Habakkuk is living in a time where his whole community, all the other Jews who are supposed to be following Jesus, who are supposed to be following God, um, 
Yahweh, they're supposed to be following God, and none of them are doing it. Man, they are wicked. All of the Jews are just wicked, and they're, they're, they're not doing the right thing. And Habakkuk's like, what in the world is going on? These are supposed to be God's people, and none of them are doing it right, and they're awful, and they're doing horrible stuff. And God says, yeah, and I'm going to judge them, and I'm going to discipline them, and I'm going to use this guy named Nebuchadnezzar, who was the leader of Babylon, and I'm going to use Babylon to come and take all of you captive. And you're going to go through this season of discipline and refining because I care ultimately about you and my glory that you might be refined. And so he uses Nebuchadnezzar, who is a horrible person, horrible person. But God clearly says, I'm going to use him. He uses Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Um, When Jesus is arrested, it's Pontius Pilate that he goes before. And Pontius Pilate is the one who determines, okay, you're going to get crucified. And God uses that Roman leader for his will. God is behind our governments. We see it in scripture that there is an authority that God is in control. He uses them. I'm going to be honest. There's a tension there. There should be a tension there. If you hear that and you think, okay, great, fine. Are we supposed to be lemmings? I think there's a tension there. And, and, and we see it also in the Old Testament. We see this guy, Daniel, who gets this this decree that you're no longer allowed to pray to Yahweh. And he's like, all right. He opens up his windows and he gets on his knees and he prays. He's like, I'm going to keep praying. He gets thrown into a lion's den and it turns out fine for him. These three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are under the rule of this king who says, everybody worships me. And they're like, nope, we don't worship you. And they're like, okay. And so they get thrown into this fire and it turns out they end up okay also. Um, but there's this, this idea that we also see this this resistance. And I think one of the things we have to keep in tension as we joyfully submit to a God who's in control and joyfully submit to a government that we believe God is behind, whether we like it or not, is we do have this tension of our role, I believe, is to submit up until it gets to a point where I'm being asked to do something that is different than what my God has asked me to do. And I think that's, that's the tension we as dual citizens walk in. I think we have an incredible model here of Paul. I mean, this is, this is the Apostle Paul. Like he, he knows that the Roman government crucified his Savior for no good reason. He has plenty of reason to be like, man, they're bad. I don't like them. We shouldn't submit to them. I watched them not only crucify. I mean, he, he's watched them martyr other people in his friend group. Paul eventually gets beheaded by Rome. The guy who wrote this eventually gets beheaded by Rome. There is a tension here to where we follow and we are as believers to submit to the government that God has given us, whether we like it or not, whether we like who the president or the governor or the mayor or whatever that looks like, the, the governments of if you're in, if you're in a, the college sphere, if you're a part of a specific campus, you have a, a governing authority over you in ways that you might like. And it doesn't mean you're silent and you're, you, know, you, you just roll over. You wrestle for ideas that you enjoy, but at the end of the day, as believers, our witnesses, our hope isn't in whether or not they're making the right rules. At the end of the day, if, if I'm under a government, whether it's a college or a state or a world power, and, and they're telling me to do something that I don't really want to do, what is our witness showing of where our hope is? And so that tension is important for mature believers to walk in. And then we see some examples here at the very end of this section, uh, verses 5, 6, and 7, which is where we'll stop. Romans 13, 5, 6, and 7 says this, therefore, so God is behind it all, and he says, therefore, and he's going to give some examples. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, 
but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. You see the the parallel between what Paul is saying here in Romans 13 and what Jesus told his followers in Mark chapter 12. There's a dual citizenship here that we have to walk in tension of. And we walk in subjection. We walk peaceably and we submit to things that maybe we wouldn't have done it that way. And maybe we didn't vote for that person. And maybe we don't think that's the, the right rule, but we submit to them. So here's the application for us leaving here today with this. Um, I, I, love, I love Romans, and I love how practical it gets. And, and we talked about this. The first half of Romans is such a theologically heavy thing. And then really Paul's just like, let me get real practical. Let me tell you how to live. Let me tell you how to pay taxes. Let me ha- tell you how to uh, hang out. Let me tell you if you're allowed to drink in public. Let me tell you if you're allowed to eat you know, meat sacrifice. And so it's this really practical section. Um, But I think there's some really important things for us. And and first and most obviously is this idea that we are to be in submission out of a greater hope in our God. And so one of the things that we walk away with from Romans 13 is that you and your life are called to look and say, okay, I need to be in submission to the authorities that I believe God has put in my life, not because I agree with them, but because I believe in God and I believe in his word and I believe he's behind things, even when it frustrates me. And it shouldn't produce apathy and it shouldn't produce disengagement because I believe he's in control. But that we're called to be in submission. And so what does that look like in your life? Are there trouble spots? Is there areas in your life where you as a, as a dual citizen representing Christ are also showing that, that maybe you put too much of your hope in this worldly kingdom and it's just wrecking your witness to where people just can't see the duality of your citizenship because you're just so obsessed or angry or frustrated, or hurt, or passionately in love with, right? Maybe you got everything you wanted, and it's, yay, our Savior is here. And that's just as equally a poor witness of the dual citizenship that we say, man, this is not our home. This is not our kingdom. But we are called to be in submission. Called to be in submission out of a greater hope that our God is behind it. Also, I I think we need to take this away from it. And this is a big soapbox of mine. We can't oversimplify solutions, right? So in Mark 12, what are they doing? They're trying to trap him, right? Do you pay taxes? Do you not pay taxes? And and what they're trying to trap him with is this oversimplified solution of, okay, you're either anti-Rome or you're pro-Rome. We live right now in a world that is massively polarized, specifically in America, I mean, there, there just seem to be these two, what, whatever the topic it is, there are just these two polar camps where you line up. And, and, and because of that, there's an oversimplification that happens. And so we think, oh, that person's all bad. Well, that person's all bad. That person's all good. And so if, if, if my presidential candidate does something, I'm going to see it through the lens of, man, this guy's the bee's knees, and I'm going to excuse everything bad he does, but that guy, I'm going to see everything he does as bad and wrong and wicked. And we see through these lenses, and we oversimplify. And so my challenge to you is, as young believers who will shape the culture we live in is fight to go deeper and fight to not oversimplify solutions. Um, if there is a conflict in our world in our society, cultural conflicts, fight to wrestle through the nuances and the details of what it is. 
as soon as we start to just categorize people or cancel people, as soon as we do that, right, we've now oversimplified it and we've just said, okay, that person's all bad and they're in this camp and so I dismiss anything they have to say and this person's all good because they're in my camp. And if we're really citizens of the kingdom of heaven, then I, I think we need to navigate more wisely and oversimplification. And so look at some of the, maybe look at some of the positions you've landed on or, or some of the camps you find yourself in and say, man, am I just overgeneralizing that person? If you look around and you see anyone across, across the aisle from you, whether politically or relationally, and you just think, no, that person's a bad guy, I, I think that's a cop-out. I think that's an oversimplification. I think maybe there's some insecurities and maybe some mistakes and maybe they've done some horrible things or whatever that looks like, but, but I think there's an oversimplification there that becomes really dangerous if we're really gonna be testifying to a bigger kingdom than, than this world. Okay, um, last thing is this. I wanna challenge you, and, and honestly, if you take away anything from this, it's this. Prioritize your witness. Prioritize your witness. If Romans 13 is true, and we're to be in subjection to a government because we actually see behind the curtain that God is behind these things and that God is in control and we can trust him and we have our hope in a, in a God who's bigger than, than the current events of our world, um, then, man, our witness needs to bear testimony to that. And just like a witness would go on trial and give a testimony for what they know and what they believe and what they saw, we as believers give a witness to the world around us. And like I already said, it's confusing to a world around us that sees us lose our minds, lose our witnesses, over whether it's politics, whether it's relationships, whether it's sports. You, you pick the topic. If we're pushing people away from the gospel, because we have our prioritized hope in some earthly kingdom idea, would we change? Would we change from that? Would we identify that? Would we apologize for that? Would we, would we step in more humility because we prioritize our witness to a world around us that needs a savior? Because what happened, guys? What happened to get us here in relationship with Jesus? If you're in relationship with Jesus, how did it happen? You were all bad. I was all bad. What happened was we had a God who came and found me where I shouldn't have been. We were spiritually separated from God, and I didn't want him, but we believe we have a God who, while I was still a sinner, said, I love that guy, and I love that girl. And in your life, you have a God who says, I don't care how far you've gone and how many awful things you've done. And I don't care how anti-religious or anti-Christian you've lived. Our God is bigger than these infrastructures and says, I want you. And so if you're hearing this right now, it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. You're here. The God of the universe says, I love you where you're at. And I have something more and something better for you. We're not signing up for religion because we want some weird structure of rules. We're signing up to follow a God who loves us when we didn't deserve it. And that grace should overwhelm us. And if that's what happened in our lives, we saw the grace of God when we didn't deserve it, received the grace of God, are now responding to the grace of God, that the beginning and the end of our Christian life is his grace, his grace, his grace, us stumbling and him picking us up and saying, I knew you were gonna stumble, I still love you, it's okay. We're learning, we're walking. And if that's what happened, that should be the testimony 
That should be our testimony to the world around us. There should be a peace and a joy even when things are falling apart around us, that there is a steadfastness because this was never, this was never because of our doing. It's never because we made the right decisions and made the right calls. It was because a gracious God said, I want more. I want more of you. And so even if you're in this room and you hear that and you're like, man, I have been stiff-arming this God, then don't take it as a coincidence you're here. Take it as a call that God brought you here, let you hear this sermon because he knew, hey, I want you to know me because what you've been doing, I guarantee you if in this room and you're running from God, when you stop and you're honest, you're exhausted. You're exhausted. So this morning you have a God that says, come and rest. Lay down your fear, lay down your anxiety, and come and rest. That's what he invites us to, and that's what we have to prioritize our witness as. Let me pray. Father, we love you, and we love you for how you love us, God. So thankful that we don't, we don't have to fear. We don't have to walk around in fear and be paralyzed by fear and anxiety, God. Um, Thank you for how just specific even your word is, even this morning with these seven verses that just give us a pretty clear command of the government is in place because you're doing things and we're to submit. And so God, would you not only help us to live that out in a way that's a testimony to others, but would you help us understand the deeper heart, your deeper heart for us this morning? That we would respond to your grace this morning. For those who maybe feel like they are far from you or maybe they're um, been stiff-arming you or running from you, God, would you just let them experience a God who says you can't run too far and that you're calling us to something better, and that is you. That's what you're calling us to. And so, Father, that work of the gospel, that work that we don't have to earn it because you did all the work, and our call is to surrender to you through Jesus Christ, Lord, I just praise you. Would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, take that truth, and do what only you can do with it. Change our lives. In the name of Jesus. Amen.